Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the Philacrosophy Podcast with High Point Head Coach John Torpy. How's it going, Torps? Good, buddy. How you doing? Oh, hanging in there, you know, just uh, living the quarantine life and, um, you know, cranking out work and playing a little hoops and lacrosse with my kids every day. What about you? Yeah, doing the same. Trying to figure out the new normal here. Um, you know, I've uh, been playing some backyard lacrosse with the kids little driveway basketball, um, all the indoor activities you can imagine, and watching my wife teach my son linear equations in, in math, sixth grade math, which uh, has been probably the most trying part of this whole thing. <laughs> good thing that she's good at math. Amen, man, because that is not my strong suit. <laughs> I, I want to kick off this podcast um, with a, a claim that you made, similar to when Dr. Evil claimed that when Dr. Evil's father claimed that he invented the question mark, um, that you invented half and half soup. Now, for people who don't know what that is, half Maryland crab, half cream of crab. You did introduce it to me, I will say that. And it might be the greatest food on earth. I've never had anything better. Every time I go to Baltimore, I get that. But you, you say it's called torp soup, and I just want to hear the uh, background on that. Uh, you're coming out of the gates hard, buddy. All right. so. This is the story. So after college, a couple buddies from Ohio State did a little modified East Coast road trip. Went to New York, Philly, Baltimore, D.C. And when we were in Long Island at my friend Pat Nigro's house, we went to a place called Fort Hill Seafood. Uh, for all you listeners out there from Long Island, you probably know where that is. And while we were there, I, I looked at the menu and I said, what is Long Island clam chowder? And my buddy goes, it's a mix of Manhattan and New England clam chowder. So I was like, I got to try that. So I tried it just like you did with the with this half and half soup down in Baltimore. And I was like, this is amazing. So when I got home, I went to Ocean Pride, which is in Timonium where I live. And there's a guy back there who shucks the oysters and he'll pour a couple bowls of soup for it if you want. And I said, uh, hey, man, could you put cream of crab and Maryland crab soup in the same bowl? And he said, why? And I said, because it tastes amazing. And so he pours it for me. My buddies are there. And uh, I have it. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is better than the Long Island clam chowder I just had. And uh, from that point forward, um, every time I went in there with my friends, we'd order it. And eventually they put it on the menu. And we go to places like Michael's uh, right up the street in Timonium. And they ended up putting it on the menu. But there's still some places that don't. I know. So, yeah, I am taking claim of that. So. I love it. It's a bold, it's a bold statement, but yeah, I'll stand by it. <laughs> I, I've been to some places a little farther away from Baltimore, down towards the airport. And I was like, um, can I have um, half Maryland crab and half cream of crab? And the lady was like, sorry, hon, uh, we can't do that. I'm like, what do you mean you can't do that? She's like, well, our, our chef won't do it. I'm like, why? Because people like don't like it. And then they turn it. And so I was like, all right, can I have a bowl of cream of crab and a bowl of... Maryland crab and an extra bowl, please. <laughs> do they give it to you? Yep. That's I know it's G and M. They won't do it there. G and M. You're right. That's it. 
they won't do it there. I've been there several times. It's like, you know, when, when every event was held at UMBC, that was a staple. You know, you fly into, you fly into a BWI right. late night. You want to get something to eat. It's one of the closest places, and they, they fight it. They're fighting it. Dude, they're not going to. You know what? It's just the ego of the chef. Yeah. The ego I think so. He just doesn't believe that it, it, like you should ever do that, but it's actually so much better. It's phenomenal. Yeah. He doesn't want to do something that he didn't think of himself. So. <laughs> I'm John Canaris, founder of Oxia Time, a watch company specializing in university branded watches. Before I fell in love with watches, I fell in love with lacrosse. Maybe you've heard of the air gate. Well, that was me and goal that day. We may not have won the national championship, but we did win the Ivy league that year and two years before. The first time, we got a ring that we never wore. The second time, we got a watch that while it had great sentimental value, the quality didn't match the significance of our achievements or the memories we created. Ever since then, I've looked for a watch with the design and quality that would live up to my experiences at Penn. After 30 years of looking and not finding what I wanted, I decided to build it myself. At Axia Time, we create Swiss-made automatic watches with stylish designs and quality befitting the universities we represent. Premium watches without the premium price. Check us out at oxiatime.com. That's A-X-I-A time.com. Switching gears. Um, this year, obviously, the, the year got cut short. Um, and we're not going to spend any more time talking about all the... Let's just talk lacrosse. Give me your latest, greatest drill that you did this year that you like really love that the guys love that you can share with us you know what we did we did uh from the archives man back in the uh back in the day we used to do this a lot at denver the downhill drill we brought back um our nine on nine take one defenseman out put a three second roll in with the ball and then we actually put coaches uh kind of like what we would do in fireball we put coaches in the middle of the field so we could be outlets for the goalies and for any of the guys in the middle third and uh, just so we're not throwing, you know, all 50-yard bombs. I think guys yeah. have a tendency to do that when you don't put them there. And uh, it just got us – it was a great drill to do right off the bat to start off practice because it got us going. It was up-tempo, and it kind of played to our style. I mean, for us, we love getting up and down the field when we have the opportunity to. Uh, that drill gave us a ton of great finishing opportunities. And what we were doing was we were putting 30 seconds up on the clock. Uh, we'd have the guys that were out in a bit of a conveyor belt on the sideline. And uh, we would just start everything off with the ground ball with guys right in front of us. And, uh, you know, typically guys were getting in that, in that 30 second clip, you know, two or three possessions, ton of giving goes, ton of cuts, great off ball movement. And we were just telling the guys like before the ball hits your stick, just kind of like glance over your shoulder. It's such a, it's such a, you know, I guess, you know, hidden skill is just being able to look over your shoulder before the ball gets into your stick to be able to make the next play. So true. Um, just be two, two, three steps ahead. And uh, it really did. It was, it was a great finishing drill, a great tempo drill. And uh, our guys just absolutely loved it. So it became something that we did, you know, three or four times a week. So great. Do you remember where we got that drill from back in the day? Mike Murphy, you pen, right? Right. Mike Murphy at Penn, downhill drill. So for those of you that are trying to follow it, it's, it's, a, it's like a full field scrimmage where you just remove a defenseman from each team. And so it creates an, you know, a six on five at each end. Um, but, um, and the whole point of the extra feeders is sometimes, you know, it's, it becomes like 10, 10, 10 man ride clearing drill with like long balls every single time. But man, the ball movement, so fun. You're right. The finishing is so great because it's just transition. And, 
the idea that you're training your players how to know what they're going to do with the ball before they get it is massively impactful. No doubt. No doubt. And I mean, it was great. It helped our clearing game. You know, there were times where we said like defensemen, you know, in order to get the ball up and out, you got to beat your guys. So we put like different rules and, and, you know, different guidelines in place at certain points, but just a phenomenal drill. And, and, you know, it was funny. I don't know if you remember this or not, but when we were at Denver, Bart Sullivan, you know, the master of all, like, how can the defense mess with the offense guy? Yeah. Um, started to shut. Remember that? He started yeah. to, like, shut. They started, they shut two guys off. So the one guy would get it at the top of the box and he couldn't do anything with it. Yeah. And that was another reason why we, uh, I didn't want that to happen again. <laughs> or you get the guy that hockeys the ball the way up the field because he's he, free second roll. So we, uh, yeah, we, we, thanks to Bart, we had that rule in place. It's actually amazing how many things you know, you, you did 10 or 20 years ago that were awesome that you put away for a little while, then you bring them back and they're as good as ever. No doubt. No doubt, man. You find yourself doing that all the time. You think the, the new shiny thing in front of you is the way to go, but sometimes it's the thing that, you know, you got to dust off from years past is the, is, the, uh, is the best answer, no doubt about it. And that's like, it's funny, like where we, you know, were at this point in the season, I think everybody was getting into the, incredibly competitive part of the season because everybody's getting into conference and so for us you know we finally had a week to practice you know and even then it was a shortened week because we were playing vmi on uh friday the 13th you know the day before everything went down and we kind of like did a return to kind of us that week because it gave us a little bit of time to you know have some practices get competitive get up and down the field a little bit scrimmage and um you know i, I i'm sure every coach kind of feels this way but we felt like we were kind of hitting our stride with some of the things that we were doing and, you know, getting some guys back from injury. And, and uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, we didn't get an opportunity to finish things off. And, you know, obviously, I'm sure we'll talk about it at some point today, but just like heartbroken for the seniors, you know, and, and um, you know, seeing those guys go and not being able to finish the season with guys that you have relationships with for four or five, six years, that you grow so, so tight with. Um, Torps, I came to a practice last year. Uh, it was the last stop on my epic RV trip across the country. And uh, I have to say that your practice was incredible and I wanted to be in that practice so bad. And um, the reason is, and for those of you guys who have never, have never seen this, the way that these guys have practice going is they, they basically have, you know, the tempo is awesome, like you would expect out of a well-run division one practice, but the way that they, create competitions within practice and the music that you get going the coolest thing ever was when all of a sudden you like call a couple guys out to do like a one-on-one -on -one. can you talk about that and then also segue that into the way you make your practices competitive and fun yeah um well it was an idea that came about a couple of years ago uh, with one of our assistants ryan cassidy he said uh what if we basically played um you know, the let's get ready to rumble. And then we had two, you know, one of the guys' faces show up on the scoreboard. And then, you know, the guys were looking up there. And then we had another guy's face show up on the scoreboard. And I said, it's a great idea. You know, we'll have them do a one-on-one -on -one or a one-on-one -on -one ground ball or, you know, something competitive. And the guys will have to choose sides, you know. So you can either go on this guy's side or that guy's side. Whichever side wins, you know, has no consequence. Whatever side loses is going to run. And um, we started doing it in practice. And the guys just absolutely loved it. And it got to the point where Ryan was doing it like 
15 times. <laughs> and I'm like, listen, man, let's like pump the brakes a little bit, you know, two or three a day. But, you know, it would be, you know, two roommates. It would be two guys that might have gotten into a fight the previous week. It could have been, you know, two best friends. And uh, it, it was just a way to like break up the monotony of just, you know, a boring old practice. Plenty when you're competing, you know, or you're, or you're doing things that are a little bit more physical. Sometimes it just, you know, the season just kind of wears and tears on you with injuries and playing time and all the different adversity that you face. But that always kept things fresh. And then from practices, um, it's funny. I, this is probably a little different than most, but I put all of our practice plans together. I don't, I don't really talk to the staff about it a whole lot when I'm putting them together. And um, the reason why is I feel like when you do that, it takes up so much time. You know, you're sitting there and all of a sudden somebody starts to talk about somebody else, something else, and you all start to talk about something else. And the next thing you know, you're, you know, you're in the office for three and a half hours putting together a practice plan, which could take 15, 20 minutes. So um, I, I typically put the practice plans together for the week and then I, you know, give them to the guys each day. We'll modify them each day and I give them to the staff before we send it out to the players. And I'll just say, hey, you guys want to make any changes? Um, they'll text me back. Hey, love to do a little bit more power play. That's what we call man up, man down. Um, you know, can we work in a ground ball drill? We'll add that in and then we go, you know, we go forward with that. But we try to do something, you know, on Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesday in the season, not so much as kind of a introduction or opponent day. It's a little bit more helmets and gloves style. Um, and then Friday we'll do a little bit more competition as well to kind of build into the speed of practice. But we love, I mean, competing, and I, I know our guys do too. And it's just, it's just a great way, I think, to keep those guys that might not be playing as much on Saturdays engaged, locked in, um, you know, gives them something to compete with throughout the course of the week. And uh, whether it's scrimmages or ground ball drills or, you know, short field stuff or, you know, anything, you know, who can get out to the field the fastest. Like we want, we want the guys to be thinking about competing all the time. I love your mini your mini uh, downhill drill. That's a great competition too, right? Where you have like to bring the cages up to the restraining line or so, and you have basically two attack in one D or maybe three attack in two D, and then you roll out a couple of middies and you end up playing four on threes and five on fours. Love that drill too. Yeah, we do. Same thing, kind of the same concept as downhill drill. It's, uh, you know, make a play before the ball hits your stick drill and a three second roll gets very physical, very competitive, and again, tons of finishing. I mean, you think about, you know, all the stuff that we used to do, you know, at Denver to kind of kickstart up-tempo practice, whether it was short field stuff or it was, you know, I think we called it like the tiger drill where we were getting like kind of skeleton reps almost yeah. of like three-on-twos and four-v-threes. I mean, that stuff is just – it's just gold, you know, and I think yeah. the more you can do shooting with a defenseman on your hands or with – you know, a goalie in the cage um, and make it as realistic and as cutthroat as possible, the better off your guys are going to be when the game's on the line. No doubt. And, like, West Jenny's great because it's a lot of finishes too, but the difference is it's equal opportunity, whereas in these drills that you're doing, you can put your lefty and righty down at this end and your other lefty and righty down at the other end, and you can get all the finishing reps to the guys that are going to do all the finishing. Absolutely. No doubt about it. All right, switching gears. Um, you have uh, one of the reasons why we uh, enjoy working together so much is we just are very passionate and, and interested in player development. Um, I'd really be interested to hear your thoughts on how you develop Dodgers and where you're at in, in, in your evolution of that concept. Yeah, I mean, one of the big things we worked on a lot this year is just like the initial move more so with speed 
Um, then with three-step dodging, um, we were finding, you know, we were getting slid to a lot more. And so the ball needed to be out of our stick a little bit more. And, you know, we did a lot of stuff with this, like, initial move over distance, like trying to get our defensemen to kind of stand up, you know, backpedal a little bit, you know, get his feet a little tighter together, get his eyes off of our feet, you know, or off of our knees or off our hips and more so up to the chest eye area. And then working on some, you know, not only like chop and jab with our lower body, but incorporating like our stick work into that as well. And then coming off that move hard with, you know, a severe amount of contact off of like the a third of a guy's shoulder blade. It's, it's tough to, you know, break it down without actually like going through it, and, yeah. you know, sending film or anything like that. And I'd be happy, you know, anybody who's listening wants to find out exactly what we're doing. I'd be happy to send you guys some things. Um, but that chop and jab initial move over space and just creating ways, even in like zone offenses and, you know, six on six offenses and the initial dodge inside the box to create space between um, the defenseman coming out at the ball, approaching the ball and the dodger, you know, whether it was on an upgrade being a little bit further out, you know, being like the backside of the offense, whether it was at X or whether it was, you know, the initial dodge, which is taking place a little bit higher. Uh, and then we were, you know, incorporating, I felt like, you know, last year we did such a good job with dodging the wings and getting underneath and, and, you know, taking advantage of the dive rule. But this year we found out that the real estate, you know, with the dive was taken away a little bit with the arc that they put in there. So it became, you know, less of an emphasis for us to, to, to go underneath and, you know, cut the corners hard from the corner of the end line, corner of the sideline and start, you know, dodging a little bit more traditionally and, and um, you know, going off with speed. The other thing is when we started to do this really, um, as we were entering into the VMI game is we felt like a lot of our attack dodges were starting within that center cylinder inside the crease tangents. And we were, you know, kind of getting handcuffed, you know, we've got some very, very good X dodgers, whether it's Asher, whether it's, you know, um, a midfielder going back there and inverting, whether it's Ben Baker, we felt like we had a lot of guys that could that put pressure on you coming up from X. And so we started to dodge um, a little bit more outside the center cylinder. And we yeah. asked those guys to get to a place that we call like the spot, which is a little bit further outside the hash marks, maybe a yard or two. And just kind of get to that spot where they had a little bit more of an opportunity to escape if a double were to come. And they had a little bit more of a chance to kind of, you know, see through their defensemen and see through uh, the defense as they got up to that spot to be able to make a decision if nobody was coming to them. And I think like we were looking at initiating a lot of our offense off a two-man game from behind. Um, again, like Kenny Brochard, my offensive assistant, is brilliant and, you know, was – was seeing that when we did that, we condensed the defense a lot. And so, you know, we, we were putting a little bit more pressure, you know, in that week going into the VMI game on our team, you know, both in six on six, five on five, and then, and then um, you know, scrimmage situations. And just by bringing the ball through X to start and doing two-man game, you know, one of probably four or five pieces of two-man game with the guys that we had, we were, you know, getting some better step-down opportunities, you know, creating a little bit more space when we got the ball back up top and, and uh, it was it was going in a good direction, no doubt. So in terms of the dodging, just to sum that up, it's kind of like you're running at your guy. You're trying to put him in a position where if, if he doesn't backpedal, then you're just going. And if he backpedals, you can control his speed a little bit and you can actually make him decelerate, <clears throat> decelerate a little bit. With, as you chop your feet, he's going to have to chop his feet a little bit and you can really put him in a, in a position where he's not very strong. Yes, and... 
I think when you chop your feet, I think one of the issues that a lot of guys have is you chop your feet maybe over like one or two yards where we were asking our guys to chop their feet over like three or four yards. And it's like uncomfortable at first, but we felt like the more you chopped your feet going into your dodge, you know, the, the harder it was for your defenseman to stay in a low stance because he was backpedaling. Yeah. And as he was backpedaling, his feet were getting closer together, which, which, you know, entailed him like standing up a little bit more. And as he started to stand up and his eyes started to rise, that's when we were using, you know, our shoulders, our, you know, the butt end of our stick to try to, you know, almost use that as a jab step too to get that guy to go opposite. Now, when you yeah. chop into your dodge, it puts your feet a little closer together, which is going to give you, you know, a little bit more of a quick burst coming out of your dodge than it would be yeah. if your feet were super wide. And then do you close in on their cushion a little bit too? Are you inside the length of their stick at times? Uh, you can be, I think when you're dodging inside the box, that would happen a little bit. And, you know, with the short stick, maybe a guy playing a little bit more like cross check, loaded cross check defense rather than like stick locked out in front of them. Yeah. I love that. Um, though. I mean, when people are backpedaling, they want you to make your break early. And so if you just, if you just get up on them and, and change your speed and they start changing their speed, they're just, they are not in a strong position because their feet are not underneath. them. No doubt. No doubt. And it's like, you know, I say it all the time to our defensemen. I'm like, you know, you look at great middle linebackers in the NFL. None of those guys are ever locked knees standing straight up. They're always in a great crouch, like ready to attack position. And if you can get your defenseman's, you know, knees to kind of, you know, or legs to kind of straighten up and you can get their eyes up on your eyes, you're essentially in total control of that guy. You know, and now it's not about blowing by your guy per se. It's about beating your guy with a little bit of separation to keep that slide guy off you so that you have a little bit more time on the perimeter to, to essentially get closer to the goal. You know, we do a lot of that. And, you know, I think it's derived from the stuff that you were doing out at Denver when I was there with three-step stuff. It was never like, okay, beat your guy so badly that maybe a better defenseman comes to you. It's keep the slide guy where he is, you know, keep the defenseman who's not as good on you, you know, on you so that now you can be in control of him. But it's like, beat him with a little bit of separation. Maybe it's a yard, maybe it's less than a yard. Maybe you're just, you know, in a position where you can just see what's going on. The, the, the sly guy can see your numbers, but he doesn't feel confident in going to. Right. Well, and the three steps was more about the middle of the dodge anyway, right? So you can initiate in a lot of ways and then start manipulating with hesitations, pop-outs, changes of direction, which leads me into the, the, the other piece that I wanted to ask you about is, um, you know, oftentimes the difference between good and great is a level that I would also equate to like a level of fluency in the game is all about deception. Um, and deception, it's kind of crazy because we talk so much about technique and about, you know, how we might want to dodge. And then it's like, okay, now let's, let's teach you guys how to fake and manipulate slides. Um, I, I, I said this on a podcast recently that I want to bring it up again because it's interesting. One time Gary Gates said to me probably like 25 years ago, he's like, yeah, I pretty much just wait for somebody to overplay me and then I beat them. <laughs> I was like, wow, that sounds he pretty was so, He was so good, man. Oh, my God. Every time somebody brings up his name, I'm like, oh, the amount of times that that guy humbled myself and everybody else. It was like and, – and I always say it's the most amazing thing about that guy. He never talked trash, man. Yeah. I mean, he did everything as a silent assassin. and He would just be like, I'm so much better than you. It's not even worth wasting my time. <laughs> it's so true. But that, that concept stuck, that, that quote stuck with me for all of these years. Even in the Denver days, I remember how much we worked on the footwork. 
And then we would try to like layer on deception. But but deception is like if it, you know you you can try to teach it all you want. You can show everybody a look back fake, a pump across, this and that. But at the end of the day, remembering to use deception, recognizing opportunities to use deception has to do with this fluency, which is a word I love because I, no I believe that it it sort of just it equates to just knowing how to play, and you can't teach somebody that. And I want to just get your thoughts on on deception, how you try to integrate it, how you try to teach it, or how you try to develop it. Man, uh, we could talk about this for a long time. Like that Connor Fields type of feel. I mean, that some guys have. I think it's, you know, I think it's hard to try to teach it to some guys, you know, that might not have like a point guardish type of, you know, background in basketball or haven't had the ball in their stick for, you know, a ton of time. You hear a lot of people like, move the ball, move the ball, move the ball. There's a time and a place to do that, but there's also a time and a place to like, you know, if your guy's not very good, like keep him around you as long as you can and just play with them and play with the guys off ball. Yeah. And uh, I look at a guy on our team, Devin Buckshot, and right. I can tell you, like, I don't talk to him about faking and, you know, um, being deceptive. I mean, it's just naturally a part of who he is. And, you know, his game is derived from years and years and years of just playing. And I know you're like the biggest proponent of this ever, just going out and like playing, whether it's three on three or two on two or, you know, learning stuff in like three by environments. And uh, I, I'll never forget this. When he came to visit uh, High Point, I said, uh, all right, so you have an outdoor box up in Syracuse. I'm like, what do you do when it snows? He's like, shovel. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, I mean, that, that was the greatest answer ever. And, uh, you know, I, I talked to, you know, Mark Burnham about him a lot in the recruiting process. And, and uh, I said, you know, he's like, listen, if you try to, you know, put him in, in an insanely regimented offense, he's going to struggle, you know, because that's not his game. But, like, he's going to, you know, have signals with guys that he plays with where, like, he might go like that with his head, and that's going to mean, like, two or three different things. And, you know, you watch some of the things that him and some of our, I'd say, like, more kind of lax rat, you know, um, you know, stick in their hands all the time, guys that are out there doing extra work, the way those guys can play and how fluid they are with their stick, it's just – it's incredible. And you would try to teach those guys like little things here and there, you know, pump to freeze the slide guy or, you know, how to essentially like maybe get a goalie, um, you know, to, to kind of bite on one thing and go the other way. Um, but a lot of that stuff is just is to me, it's just so natural. And it's something that, you know, we look for a lot in the recruiting process. And then we try to, you know, maybe more so in the fall than, than we do in the spring because it just gets a little tight for time. We try to do different things like within the box or we try to do different things in short-sided drills to be like, look at the situation you're in right now. You know, I always felt like you could tell the best defensemen who are great off-ball defensive by how they play a two-on-one. You know, if a great defenseman can kind of make the guy with the ball hold it a little bit longer, he can use his feet and his body to like freeze those guys up. That's typically a guy that does pretty well in any environment off the ball. Yeah. Um, you know, and you look at the guys offensively who can get defensemen off the ball to kind of move off kilter where they don't want to go, you know, and you try to create drills that can do that, whether it's short-sided drills or, you know, uneven drills, things like that, you know, you start to find a lot about, you know, the savvy and the, and the IQ that you guys have. No doubt. And deception, like you just referenced, is not all, all about offense. I mean, deception is huge on defense. You used to talk about that all the time when you were a slider. You could talk people right out of dodging. 
No doubt, man. No doubt. I mean, it's, it was funny. I mean, you, you know, just, I would never say I was the most gifted athletically, but like I always tried to, you know, get in my opponent's head in some way, shape or form, whether it was, you know, yelling, you know, double to a guy when you weren't going to slide or, you know, whatever that way, whatever that might be. Like, look at the guy that you're, that you're respecting. And, and a lot of times it's just like, you know, and you see this working, you know, working with kids out there, there's certain guys that just don't think that way. You know, yeah. they just go out there and they play. But, you know, if you start thinking in your cerebral and you go, oh, my gosh, man, this is a guy that's got 50 goals. and This is a guy that's never crossed the midfield line. You know, it, it, you start thinking on defense, you know, in, in regards to percentages, you're going you're gonna to be pretty successful off ball. I kind of feel like that stuff gets developed, um, you know, in the sandlot, though, too. Because, like, you know, you grow up and it's like, all right, that's, that's the guy who always shoots it. I'm going to leave that guy who never makes a shot open. You know, and you just kind of like learn these things. And a lot of times as coaches, you know, we've proliferated the structure that's out there. And it's not, it wasn't like we did it in, 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 with malice or anything. It was just like in the spirit of the coaching evolution and trying to win and doing better and better. But in the meantime, you really have taken away a lot of the um, unstructured play and free play away from the kids, away from, away from these kids. And they, they don't really know what it is. And so there's things that that we as coaches are like, man, why is it that like they don't recognize that that's a lefty or why, you know, no doubt. like it's no just, doubt. it's really because we've been telling them everything to do for so long that they haven't had a chance, honestly, to figure it out on their own. I'm with you hundred percent. I mean, there's gotta be parts of your practice that, you know, incorporate gray area portions of the game. I mean, whether it's playing out a ground ball, whether it's, you know, uneven drills, whether it's pulling a guy out of a drill, you know, whether it's starting in a scramble situation. I mean, you've got to, you've got to create those different things. And, you know, I think it's a lot of young coaches have a problem with like wanting to put air in the whistle all the time and stop and fix everything. And, and there's a certain time you just got to let guys play things out because man, it'll, it'll, it'll help their growth rate more than probably any drill out there. And I, I, I mean, I remember like as a kid, my father and I would go to um, basketball court all the time. We'd just drive around with basketball in the court, uh, in the car. And, you know, wherever there was a game, whether it was Pannonia, you know, middle school or Pinewood middle school or Kenilworth, you know, we would like just get out of the car and just start playing with people. And my dad would like take it upon himself to be like, you know, red hour back, you know, like, you know, the coach and also playing. And he'd always be, anytime he'd see that we were outmatched and there were 15 guys waiting to play on the court, he'd be like, we're playing zone, you know? And so as a kid, I start playing zone defense and you start playing two guys rather than one. And, you know, it's just, it's things like that, that you just, you can't create, you know, if, if all you're doing is running six on six or you're, you know, trying to script everything out. I mean, I always say this, you know, this man, it's like my ability to be a better off ball defenseman came, you know, on hoop courts more so than it came on lacrosse fields. No doubt. All right, let's switch gears to defense a little bit. Give me your latest, greatest um, idea, concept, drill, skill, anything that you're fired up about on defense these days. Um, I, you know what, man? We, we kind of returned back to just being simple on defense. Um, it, was a, it was a concept that, again, my, one of my assistants came up with. Uh, I, I'm, I, and I'll give those guys a plug, man. I'm blessed to, to have had amazing assistants, and I've got an amazing staff now with, with uh, Coach Tuma, Coach Brochart. Uh, Connor McKemmy, these guys are like gold, you know, and, and there's times as a head coach where, you know, uh, my head's spinning because i got a million different things going on. And, and these guys just bring so many great ideas to the table and just almost take control of the team at certain times. But, you know, in 2015, uh, Ron Garling, who's now at Cabrini, was on my staff. 
And we were doing a little bit too much defensively, I feel like, um, at certain points in the season. And some of that was due to injury. Some of that was due to just, like, experimentation in the, in the you know, out-of-conference games. Let's, like, see what works. Let's see what doesn't work. Some of it was experimentation and practice. And we came up with this concept that was, I mean, super simple. Everybody's doing it. But it was just, like, close the gap, set the trap. And so on the ball, it was less about where we're forcing guys and just more about getting out and playing guys painting a clear picture to the initial slide, whether we needed to go or not. And then when the ball got to the backside, it was, all right, now we celebrate the backside of our defense. We come alive. You know, if there's great pressure on the ball, maybe we can turn that into doubles behind the play. If there's not great pressure on the ball, then that guy on the ball needs to know that he's on a little bit of an island because now the Dodgers a little tighter to the goal, you know, and we can't go as fast because that guy's got eyes to see what's open if we do. And, um, you know, we, like I said, we got away from that a little bit um, as the, you know, in the early part of the season, just because we were trying different things, different zones, um, different defensive schemes. Our approaches were more kind of force-based or when you're approach-based where, you know, in this defense, the guys started to come alive because it really encourages that backside guy to get on his guy, um, you know, try to take away, you know, strong hand on the backside a little bit more, uh, take away options. And it gets the guys off the ball just looking to hunt double teams. And I always say, like, the greatest thing, you know, the feeling as a defenseman that I ever had was when two guys came to the ball in a double, whether it was jumping a pick or whether it was sliding to a guy who was trapped or whether it was, you know, a, a certain guy on your team that you knew could always lock a guy up in a V-hole that you could go to and getting a double team, putting the ball on the ground and finishing the possession. It's just like it's it's a – it's a feeling that, you know, it's, it's tough to generate when you're a, just win your matchup team. And uh, it gets, I think the thing is too, when you start to play out on the initial dodge, maybe you're sliding the initial dodge a little more, just get your guys playing faster and get your guys um, to have a little bit more of an aggressive mindset. I think in terms of like maybe something new that we were doing, we were just, we had a guy on our team, uh, Chris Price, who was having a really good year. He was playing everybody's number one cover guy. He was everyone's number one Dodger coming up from behind uh, at X. And uh, we were giving him the freedom to just go anytime there was a shot, just get up the field and go. And we were generating, you know, fantastic opportunities in transition and eliminating a lot of the teams we played against personality in the ride by just getting the thing up and trying to be across the midfield line, you know, within, we always say like, we want the ball to go zero, vertical in zero to four seconds, but try to get across the midfield line in like four to eight seconds and just really be aggressive there. That's awesome. On, on the defensive topic, um, still, I'd like to ask you about pick defense. I've been watching, you know, like everybody else, there's a lot of two-man game going on. There's a lot of different ways to play it. And I got a question for you. I, I watch a lot of people play pick defense where the, you know, short to long, the long, go, the, the long six going under the pick and the short's coming out and trying to chip it. But what I see happen all the time is two guys on the ball, a throwback, and um, I'm wondering, and then they got to rotate to it or the guy's getting a shot. Um, and if he slips it, he's wide open oftentimes. And this can be on the wing and from behind. I wanted to ask you what your take is on that technique and also, like, what, what makes it work better than that? Yeah, I've I've never been a big fan of like step hedging out to picks. I mean, certain areas you can do it, um, but I, I'm a huge proponent of like jumping picks within a certain you know yardage range of the goal, especially at X. I mean, I know we used to do that with like Austin Conkle, man, shooting him behind the goal and and looking to get jump picks. I think it's just 
like I said, it creates a double team situation tight to the goal that, I mean, it's hard to manufacture in many other places. Um, we, we do a lot of our pick work and, you know, I asked the staff a couple, a couple days ago with you know, kind of everybody being home and sequestered at home. I said, you know, just let's put down on paper uh, some of the things that we want to change and some of the things we like that we did this year, kind of moving forward, just kind of a, you know, synopsis, like quick review of the year. And one of the things that I liked that we did this year with picks was we said, let's pretend like there's no such thing as a pick with the guy on ball, you know, and always try to get over the pick, like try to be aggressive and get over the pick as much as we possibly can. Uh, just so the guy on ball wasn't like looking over his shoulder, you know, as the pick's coming and, and the next thing you know, like, you know, he's playing the ball soft, you know, the, the offense is taking advantage of certain opportunities, especially tight to the goal. And so I like that. Um, but I do think with that being said, the guy who's, you know, whose man is setting the pick needs to always be in a position where he's ready to switch, you know, and he's ready to call that out early or he's ready to jump the pick because, you know, if it's a good pick, if it's a good like North South pick and that guy's coming off with speed at certain points on certain points of the field, it's so, it's so hard to get, you know, under that action or over that action. So you need to have some, some sort of a backup plan. Um, and we, and it's, you know, picks is something that defensively, you know, myself and coach Tuma talk about a lot, you know, and a lot of the stuff is, you know, I guess matchup based. Some of the stuff is, you know, where we are in the field. Some of the stuff is, you know, what we feel most comfortable with, you know, I know last year, one of the seasons said, man, we, we love and we trust all submitties. Let's just go out and switch everything to start and, you know, see if we can win our matchups and then, you know, we played some teams with pretty good ex-Dodgers that were taking advantage of that and going over and over. And I think, you know, in terms of picks, I might be different than most people, but it's always living, breathing in terms of, you know, our ability to reevaluate what we're doing and how we change from game to game. There's some blanket statements we have on picks, but a lot of it is like, all right, look where these guys are picking, look, and how, look how they want to pick, you know, what should we do with these guys? What should be our number one or number two and our number three plan going into this game? And uh, we kind of go from it, you know, from that standpoint. Interesting. Um, on the pick topic, um, in box across, you see repicks all the time. Uh, repick meaning, um, you know, you come up and sort of set a fake pick, roll the net, the Dodger carries to a new spot, you know, maybe six or eight yards away, and then you you come back and set a repick. Um, and the reason why a lot of times it works is because you can get a step on the defender who's guarding the picker and that he's not prepared because he thinks he guarded guarded the action and all of a sudden you're kind of getting a step to on him and he's a little late on his communication or in bad position you know it's it's a staple in box lacrosse I don't see it a ton in field why do you think that is and what are your thoughts on that maybe it's because people fear you know that turning into a moving pick I mean I'm not really sure but I'm with you 100 percent and uh, I think the more times you force a defenseman to play a pick within a possession you know, the more likely it is you're going to gain separation and get something out of it. I mean, you know, I, you think about it from the perspective of a defenseman, you know, having to play one pick, you get through it. You're like, all right, I did my job. It's like a slide. You, you know, you get through it, you recover. You're like, all right, we got something good here. You're naturally like taking a breath to be like, all right, we, we did our job. We're good. And then boom, it comes right back at you again. And um, I'm, I'm with you hundred percent. I know it was a big part of our teaching out there when we started to do a lot of the box development stuff with our guys and uh, you know, in uh, the Ritchie center. And then it carried over to the field with, you know, the pairs offense and things like that. But I am a huge proponent of, you know, your first pick is going to create maybe 
a yard or two of separation, your second or third pick, you know, could be big enough to drive a Mack truck through. And, um, you know, I'm, I think the way you set up your pick, the way you come off your pick, you know, the, the, we do a lot of stuff in the box when we set our picks, like it's more of like a slip and it's, you know, I'd say like within like a three or four yard, you know, um, distance from the guy who has the ball. And we never allow the guys to set their feet when they're actually setting the pick. So it's a lot of like come off hard, Dodger comes off hard, you create separation, you do it again. And a lot of our box teaching that we do with our guys is, you know, you got to set two or three picks before you can actually attack and look to go. And it just teaches our guys like, you know, how easy it is to get separation when you do that. Yeah. I think part of it too, actually, is probably because everybody picks short to long. And I think yeah. if you pick long to short more often, you could, you know, dick around with the ball with a shorty on you and not worry about the, pro the pressure and be able to like control your man and control that potential switch, which can really hang them both up. You know, that's the hang up two man concept on that video I sent you that time. But I was just curious about that. I, I think we're going to see a lot more of it. I mean, in box across, it's almost every time. They almost never don't set two picks unless they're just trying to swing it. No doubt. And, I, and I'm like, I'm not going to sit here and like preach about the rules right now, but I would love, I mean, you look at like the NBA and what's deemed a moving pick and what those guys do at the top of the key every single time a point guard's bringing it down with a big man coming up and setting one. I would love to see the sport of lacrosse be a little bit more lenient with the actual like movement, you know, going into and coming out of the pick. I think, you know, if they did that, it would make the game a little bit more fun to watch offensively. I think you got to qualify the sport of lacrosse to the sport of men's lacrosse because actually in women's lacrosse, they let you move a lot more. Really? Yeah. There's like I got to no learn this pick. stuff. <laughs> I know you got daughters. Dude, um, I'm telling got... you, they're going to be good, man. Keep, oh, an eye, okay. keep an eye on them. Birdie. Birdie. Birdie is Birdie. a beauty. That the video you sent me of the uh, I Spy uh, something red was uh, pretty money. Oh my Almost gosh, man! The uh, Tommy Torby uh, video and when he was shutting off the kid in soccer. <laughs> yeah, he didn't quite get the concept of soccer, and I I couldn't help much there. <laughs> All right, last up, last topic, um, recruiting. Um, we, it's it's hard to know what to do with recruiting right now because we don't really know how many. Um, how many kids are going to be on your roster next year based on the rules or for the next four years? Um, but first of all, how long is this dead period going on? Uh, that's a good question. I think it's still April 15th, but I'm not 100% sure. I should probably ask my compliance guy about that. Yeah, for now, you can just assume it's dead, right? But um, You know what? We're, we're kind of like, I mean, I sat here with my staff the other day, and until like the NCA makes a ruling about the fifth year, you know, and the, and, you know, will – the guys that played this year get another year back. I feel like you're kind of like handcuffed. You don't, there's not a whole lot you can do right now. And I'm hearing like March 30th, there's going to be some, some answers given out, and you know, what the release is going to look like for those guys. But uh, it's going to be interesting. I, I, I've said this on numerous occasions, anybody that sits down and tells you like a blanket statement on the recruiting process and how it works is wrong because it's different for each kid. Yeah. It's different for each school. It's, you know, it can change on a whim with, you know, guys leaving that were committed to you, um, you know, guys in your program taking off. I mean, I, I joked about it this year, but we were looking for, you know, a 2019 goalie in fall. I mean, we needed a guy. We needed a fourth goalie in practice that would, you know, take pride in getting shots and, and you know, going out in front of our guys. And, and, and um, you know, there's almost like certain positions you're always looking for guys and there's other positions that, 
you know, maybe you're not, but, uh, you know, I, I, it's going to be really interesting to see how things play out. And it's funny. I think our guys on our team think that I have a lot more answers than I do. And I'm like, fellas, you're probably going to find out about this before I do. You know, it was like the March 12th with everything that happened there. I was the last guy to know what was going on. Our guys are on social media. Our guys are talking to other kids on other teams that they're friends with. And, um, you know, I'm sitting in my office minute by minute trying to, you know, figure out what's going on, having conversations with our staff. And it wasn't until the NCAA put the tweet out about the cancellation of the championships that, you know, I felt like we had our firm answer. You mean you're not on Twitter all the time and uh, just interacting with everybody and sharing your, you know, sharing your thoughts and opinions? What's this Twitter thing everybody's talking about so much? Snapple, <laughs> like, yeah, I don't Snapple know. Twitter, face mask. I don't know any of that stuff. Um, I feel like the uh, the summer is a little bit in jeopardy, and I guess we're just gonna have to wait and sort of see what happens. Um, but it it would be uh, one way or the other. It's hard to imagine it's gonna be exactly the way it was gonna be. Um, just yeah, no doubt. The way things are looking, and so without speculating on that. I feel like there's a ton of good 2021s out there. I feel like the 2021 class was actually grazed over more quickly than, than any class ever because, because they're the first class that wasn't actually recruited early. And so everybody kind of, you know, hey, let's keep looking at the 20s, da, 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 and then we'll take a look at the 21s as sophomores in the fall and then last summer. I mean, you know, but, but I really feel like, Honestly, like there's no way to, there's so many kids. There's no way to see everybody. There's so many good teams. There's so many events. And, you know, it's, my guess is, is that this class, there's a lot of gems out there that people don't know about. Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, we see it at some of our prospect days. We see it at events we go to. I mean, it is just, it's incredible. I mean, how many good players there are, how many good athletes there are, you know, guys that, you know, you look at and you see a ball of clay and you're like, man, this kid could develop into something really good. And uh, it's getting more and more competitive every year. I mean, it's just, it's great, you know, and, and I love it because I don't think we're ever going to win those like top five recruiting battles, but you know, we take so much pride in just our development and, yeah. you know, we always try to win the development battle. So as long as we're getting a kid from a great family and someone that, you know, is coming in with an open mind and wants to learn, um, you know, we, we always feel like there's something to work with there. Yeah, no doubt. Well, if you haven't seen a high point practice or you haven't seen the campus, you need to, you need to see it. The place is sick. And uh, Torp, always so great talking lacrosse with you. Thanks for coming on, man. Hey, buddy. Keep doing this, man. It's uh, becoming a lot of people's guilty pleasure to watch these and to uh, listen to these things in this, in this uh, very quiet time we have here. So I appreciate all you're doing for the game, my man. Thanks, buddy. Stay safe. Stay healthy. You too, bud. All right. Later.